Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I have got a request for all of you. Now, Chris and I have decided that we're going to try an experiment. We're doing our first crowdsourced episode of Tech Stuff, and we want to know what your pick is for the worst video game of all time. Now, nominations, you can you can make one nomination. You nominate one game, and you need to tell us the name of the game and the platform it was on. And it could be any platform. It could be an arcade game. It could be a PC, Mac, uh, Xbox, PS3, Nintendo, handheld console. It can be web-based, if you like. But just you let us know what the platform is so we can make sure we count that as the votes. So you can nominate your game either through email, which is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can nominate through Twitter or Facebook. And we're going to put a uh, cutoff date on this. I, I want to have the episode go up by the end of September of 2011. So let's say you need to get your nominations in by September 8th, 2011. So if you get those nominations into us, we will make sure we include those in the process and we will have an episode where we give you the worst video games of all time based upon the votes of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear from you. 
touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Yay! You didn't leave a bar of soap when you left me. <laughs> what? You, you don't know that song? No, I... Oh, I'll, int- I'll introduce it to you afterward. Okay. That's the very first line, too, so that makes it very easy to find that song. Uh, we're going to start this off with a little... Google Plus suggestion. This comes from Kyle, who says, you could do a podcast on the history of Texas Instruments. You're right, Kyle. We could do that. And in fact, we shall. Yes. <laughs> this, this was a, this is a challenge. You know, it, it's funny with all these, um, with all these different tech companies with the storied past like we did with IBM and, and now with Texas Instruments, um, you start looking in into their history and wow. Yeah. There's a lot to it. Yeah, especially when, you know, you can't just say, hey, the company started on this date and here's what they did because it's a little more complicated than that. Yep. And um, I, I, I promised uh, Jonathan a vocoder reference and he wasn't ready for this or actually it wasn't vocoder so much as it was autotune we did a podcast on autotune some time ago yes and uh along with the technology for that uh texas instruments also has a similar history because it began as an oil exploration company sort of using seismology in order to detect oil deposits Yeah. yeah this is really interesting let's uh cast our minds back to 1930, um, there was a company founded by several people, including one Eugene McDermott, and the company was called Geophysical Service Incorporated, or GSI. Mm-hmm. And this company was specialized in uh, using seismology uh, methodology and equipment in order to search for oil deposits. So this is a company that would go out, survey an area, uh, attempt to find whether or not any oil may be underneath that particular area and then a, an oil drilling company would come in and and drill for that oil. Yeah, we talked about uh oil exploration technology in the um in another podcast again. Um and this this also was uh, I guess like an early version of the technology we talked about then because uh what they would do um would be vibrate the uh the earth's surface mm-hmm. by setting off little explosions called shots. Yep. And then what they would do is record and time uh, the sound waves that would reflect back in right. order to get a good idea of where the oil was. Yeah, that would give the time between the impact of the explosion and the echo would give an indication of what the ground below, what it was made of, because sound will travel at different rates through a different medium. Oh, okay, yeah. The echo? Yes. The echo? Yes. The echo? Yes. So yeah, this was back in 1930, which was sort of an auspicious time to be starting a new company. Uh, that was back, of course, uh, you might remember. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not that old. The Great Depression. No, I, I just, I didn't think it was that great. It's kind of a lousy depression. But they did file papers in New Jersey to incorporate the company, uh, Geophysical Service, in May. In May 1930, May 16th specifically. Yeah. Now let's let's uh we could talk more about what they did back then, but let's really get to the interesting part. So let's uh let's skip ahead a little bit. Well, I was going to point out that uh, 
It, just a couple little short, little interesting facts. You know, Jonathan and I do tend to get off on these weird little tangents. Yeah. Um, Which yeah, I'm, they're trying to hold on to. Yep. <laughs> they're, uh, they actually changed the name of the company in 1939 to Coronado Corporation because their competitors were a little concerned, uh, that they might be withholding proprietary information and GSI was, uh, they had gotten into the business of exploring for oil themselves. Yeah. Um, so they were licensing the technology, and a, a an oil company picked up Coronado Corporation. Um, the uh, com- company actually ended up being Amico, which I think is funny. Just so a weird. Is isn't Coronado the name of an ABBA song? No. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of something else. Fernando. Yes. Sorry. Um, well, I can hear the drums, however. <laughs> so Eugene McDermott was one of those founders. He was joined by a few other people, including uh, Cecil H. Green and J. Eric Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1941, they bought Geophysical Service Incorporated. Mm-hmm. They, they purchased the company. Uh, yeah, they bought it back from the oil company. I think the next day... There was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes, exactly. I, I do not suggest – I'm not suggesting in any way that there was any correlation between these two events. Yeah, they uh, – <laughs> as a matter of fact, it, uh, the the quote from T.I. was that uh, if the financing was not completed and in place with, within 10 days by Monday, December 8th, 1941, yeah. the sale would be terminated or negotiations would be terminated. That was actually the quote from their, their stuff. No, it's, so it, that's – in 1945. Fascinating. Yeah, yes. And 1941, they're still doing the same thing that they were doing before. It's just now it's, it's owned by new people. Yep. In 1945, they uh, hire an electrical engineer, um, a, a Patrick Haggerty. Mm-hmm. And Haggerty has, becomes the general manager of a division of Geophysical Service uh, Incorporated called the Laboratory. Look, I said laboratory. I knew I, I was practicing. So I wouldn't say lab, laboratory. Over and over. The Laboratory and Manufacturing Division, so or L&M. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Haggerty had been a lieutenant in the, um, I believe, in the uh, the Navy. A lieutenant, you mean? <sighs> Seriously. Actually, yeah, he was the uh, procurement was officer lieutenant. for the uh, Magnetic Anomaly Detector Project. And that the MAD project was actually one of uh, geophysical services... Um, I did say that right, right? Yes. I, I keep thinking TI. Yeah. Uh, that was their one of their contributions to the war effort here in the United States. So he was already working with the company from the military side. So he was already known to them. So he was working on so uh, hired the, the, the MAD project, right? Yeah. So he had mad skills. So next. All right. Anyway, uh, yeah, he, he joins and L&M, that division starts to get – Lots and lots of business, mainly through military contracts. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it gets so much business that it starts to dwarf the exploratory business mm-hmm. of GSI. So in 1951, the owners and Haggerty all decide to restructure the company. And, uh. Won't be the last time. Nope. But L&M now becomes the major part of the company, and GSI becomes a division within L&M. So it's the old switcheroo, because before it was the the opposite, right? GSI was in charge, and L&M was a division. Now L&M's on top. Won't be the last time. They rename the company, and they call it General Instruments Incorporated. Uh, General Instruments? Yes. <laughs> yes, um, major malfunction. It was a major disaster, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. General Instruments, the problem – there was one problem, which was that – 
There was another company, uh, I believe it was on the eastern seaboard, and I think it was a defense contractor that already had that name. So uh, They said, hey, we've got that name. And you say, why are you so defensive? Right. So in 19... Wow. In 1952, <laughs> uh, the company undergoes a name change to Texas Instruments, or TI for short. I like that name. I think they should stick with it. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, uh, so did they, and they did. So... Getting back to what they were working on, uh, before they became TI, but, you know, it was essentially the same company that would become TI. Uh, their, their contracts included things like building up, uh, uh, submarine detection equipment mm-hmm. and, uh, and radar, uh, controlled bomb sites. So we're talking about some high tech stuff for the, the military right now. That's really their main customer at yeah. this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they had plenty of business because, First, there was the aftermath of uh, World War II, and yeah. then there was the Korean War. And uh, so the war was keeping them going, but they knew that they had to diversify in order to become a successful company. And so they looked into various other industries they could start to uh, make headway into so that they're not just a, a military defense contractor. Mm-hmm. And one of those industries was the burgeoning vacuum tube industry. And we talked about vacuum tubes recently in our theremin podcast. Mm-hmm. So if you want to learn more about vacuum tubes, I recommend you, you listen to that because they're actually, we do a, a quick down and dirty description of what a vacuum tube is and what it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1948, Something happened that really revolutionized the electronics industry. At, uh, at the time, not everyone saw it as a revolution, yeah. but it would turn out to be the big thing that would that would shape all electronics for that point forward. And that was a uh, a little invention from uh, Bell Laboratories. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was the transistor. I feel like we've touched on the transistor. Yeah, we've talked about transistors a lot in this podcast. So you can find plenty of other episodes where we talk about what transistors are and what they do. But the the introduction of the transistor in 1948 was a pretty big deal. Although, again, not everyone recognized it as such because vacuum tubes did the same thing as transistors. They took up more space. They gave off a lot more heat. But they were... Uh, they were a proven technology and the transistor was kind of a prototype and, and no one really saw a way to make it practical from the the first introduction. of It, it was more like a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of curiosity, if you're interested in learning specifically about transistors, we do have an article on the site, too, by Nathan Chandler about how transistors work. Yes. And uh, if you want to – well, the one person who did recognize that the transistor could be a big deal besides the people in Bell Laboratories uh, was Haggerty. And so he wanted to pursue a license from Western Electric to get the uh, Bell transistor. And at first, their initial requests were denied. And that had to do with a lot of different things. For one, Western Electric supposedly did not see TI as being capable of, or actually at this point still uh, uh, general uh, it was still mm-hmm. GSI, right? Uh, but uh, they didn't see GSI as being capable of producing transistors in a in a manufacturing process. So that was the first reason. But there's also there's a complicated uh, relationship with the U.S. military, where there Western Electric's being told by one branch of of the government, you need to keep the transistor under wraps because 
this information, if it got into the hands of unfriendly entities, could be very harmful for us. And then you had another part of the U.S. government saying, you can't sit on this information that's uh, anti-competitive and it is hurting industry, so you've got to share it. So they were kind of in a tough plot spot, but eventually they got uh, clearance from the government, Western Electric did, to license the technology of the transistor to any NATO country, any any company within a NATO country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, Texas is in a NATO country because they still haven't declared their independence. So Texas Instrument immediately jumped on that opportunity and secured a license for the princely sum of $25,000. Which was a lot of money in 1952. It's a lot of money right now. It's not as much, though. But yes. And uh, uh, that was secured in 1951. So then we've got uh, the the license that is going to give Texas Instruments its uh, foundation for business for the foreseeable future. And J. Eric Johnson actually said, this is a quote, Finally, we have purchased from the Western Electric Company a license under which we may manufacture transistors and related semiconductor devices. The transistor is a very new development, primarily of Bell Telephone Laboratories, which promises to revolutionize electronics. It is, in a general sort of way, a substitute for the vacuum tube. There is little question, but the transistors and related devices will play an exceedingly important part in our future. That Boy, was howdy. very true. Yeah. yeah, very, very true. And in fact, Bell Laboratories <laughs> held a symposium about transistors because it was such a new technology that even people who were licensing it really had very little knowledge about what what they could do and, and how they were made. Yeah, they jumped right in. In 1953, they were going gangbusters on trying to come up with new technologies. Um, the Semiconductor Products Division was announced uh, it, or was started in 1953, and they produced the first commercial silicon transistor in 1954. Yep. Also, the first germanium high frequency transistor. Yeah. So they were they started and uh, you know right away. Yeah, and it was it was pretty interesting. I mean, like four of the people. Well, TI sent four people to that symposium I had mentioned. Mm-hmm. One of them was was Haggerty. Uh, and another was a, a fellow named Mark Shepard, who would later on become a, a the, the head of Texas Instruments. Yeah. Uh, and they actually watched a very, very technical presentation from Bell Labor- uh, Laboratories. Man, I almost did it again. Bell Labs. They mm-hmm. saw a very technical uh, uh, symposium, and they, they synthesized that information, brought it back, and started to really work on things. Uh, they had to create a thing, a device called a crystal puller. Mm-hmm. Because at the heart of the transistor is the, the the earliest ones they were using was were germanium crystals, and in order to create the germanium crystals, the the wafers that they they would use as the foundation for these uh, these transistors, they used a crystal puller. And what a crystal puller is is essentially there's a um, there's a crucible where mm-hmm. you melt germanium, and then what you do is you insert a uh, pure germanium crystal seed. And you put that into the molten germanium mix and you start rotating the seed and slowly withdrawing it from the mix and you will start to create a, uh, a crystal, essentially like a, a crystal rod. Um, but you, it's a very exact process. And you also will have to introduce certain impurities into the mix in order to dope the material. Uh, we've talked about doping semiconductors before, and if you haven't, if you're not familiar with that, you should probably listen to some of our other episodes. But in general, uh, what makes a semiconductor a semiconductor is the doping process, because a pure 
uh, semiconductor would not really conduct electricity. Yo, that semiconductor is dope. Wow, we are just insane today. Anyway, uh, so the crystal polar was a pretty cool thing. You can actually find some neat illustrations and pictures online of these crystal polars, and and they're kind of medieval looking. Yeah. Fascinating, though. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So as Chris was saying, they started to introduce transistors. The first two they tra- they introduced never really took off. It was the Type 100 and Type 101. Mm-hmm. And the reason they never really took off is they, uh, the Texas Instruments discovered there was a, a manufacturing problem. And so they discontinued them pretty quickly, like with it less than a year after they had introduced them. But in 1953... Uh, that's it's September 1953. They introduced types 102 and 103. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find interesting about these two types of transistors, and we're not going to talk about every single transistor TI produced because that would that would take 50, several podcasts, 50 podcasts easily. But types 102 and 103 are interesting to me in particular because uh, of a fellow named D.D. Mac McBride. Mm-hmm. So McBride actually manufactured these transistors. He he put them together by hand. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a time-consuming process at all. Yeah, he would have to look through a microscope and lay out the transistor by hand. And uh, using this method, he could produce about 30 transistors every two days. So averaging 15 a day. Uh, not the most efficient process. Also, there was no guarantee that any two transistors would have the exact same properties. They might have very similar properties, but the crystal pulling technique was not so exact as to produce uh, perfect replicas. So, right. yeah, you, you could have – you would have a type 102 or a type 103 transistor. You might not necessarily have set out to make a 102 versus a 103. You were making a transistor, and then after you made it, you would test the transistor to see what properties it had, and then you would categorize it as either a 102 or a 103. Seems like they should come up with a process for making that faster and more reliable. Well, they did, but it took a while. Uh, they also they also experimented with other transistor materials. There was a uh, something called a grown junction transistor, mm-hmm. um, and you know they were mostly using germanium still at this point. But they did start to experiment with silicon. In fact, Texas Instruments was one of the first companies to do that. Although there are disputes. Disputed reports about other companies that were working on it around the same time, possibly earlier. What isn't under any sort of uh, uh, dispute is that Texas Instrument launched the first commercial silicon-based transistor. Texas Instruments did do that, although other companies were working on it at the same time. Yeah, they did. They bought some uh, silicon material from DuPont, um, the chemical giant, and uh, grew a crystal from that. Um, apparently was ready to go on April 14th, 1954. Um, and then they announced on May 10th of that year the, uh, the availability of grown junction silicon transistors. Yeah. And around, around that same time, you, you might be asking, okay, well, they're building all these transistors. Who are they building them for? Well, that's, that's kind of what Texas Instruments had to ask because, uh, there was such a new technology. No one had really yeah. figured out how to incorporate it. Uh, and Texas Instruments had to take it upon itself to teach the world what the transistors could do and how they could be used, which to me actually reminds me of a lot of modern day electronics companies where they'll produce a new device that doesn't seemingly have a a, a space to fill, right? Yeah, but it I'm can thinking, show, a, uh, show off the technology. Right. 
but I'm thinking right now specifically mm-hmm. of the iPad. Right. Because you have the iPad where it was this, this device that doesn't really fill a gap. Like there's not like a space in technology where you'd say, oh, I was missing this and then the iPad came along and that fills that gap. It doesn't mean that the iPad's not useful and it doesn't mean that it's not a great device. It just means that Apple had this uphill battle. They had to prove that you want – you. there would be reasons to want one. Mm-hmm. And they did prove that and they were successful at it. Well, Texas Instrument had the same problem. Yeah, They had to prove that the transistor was something you would want – and when I say you, I'm talking about other companies here, companies that yeah. produce other stuff because Texas Instruments customers were all other companies, right? not consumers. Uh, so first they struck up a uh, relationship with the Sonatone Corporation making transistors for hearing aids. Yeah. What? Yeah. But the problem, as I mentioned before, that hearing aids, uh, hearing aids need a very sort of precise uh, uh electronic circuitry in order to work properly, clearly, in order for the, the, the sound that you hear to be in the right range for human hearing. Otherwise, mm-hmm. of course, you're not really helping out. It's not a hearing aid. It's a, it's a hearing detriment. So that was a challenge because, like I said, the transistors that they were producing didn't all have identical properties. So they'd have to play with those quite a bit in order to get it to work properly. But uh, they Haggerty saw the opportunity to go after uh, – the market by making something specific that would demonstrate the usefulness of transistors. Mm -hmm. And that was the transistor radio. Yes. The Regency radio, the TR one. Yeah. Which became a huge collector's uh, item. Yep. October 18th, 1954. Yep. And, and that was, I mean, it was a pretty revolutionary product here. We had, a radio that used transistors in the in place of vacuum tubes, more or less, which meant it was a much smaller product than the vacuum tube based radios, and uh, you know that it took a lot of work on on TI's part to build a transistor radio that had transistors uh, with the right kind of frequencies to to actually pick up radio frequencies. It, it was it was a a lot of of uh, research and development that went into this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know how much they cost when they launched? No, I don't actually. I didn't have that part. $49.90, which Haggerty later said might have been a serious mistake because oh. they had poured so much money. TI had poured so much money in, into research and development and, and manufacturing to create the the uh, radio mm-hmm. that – it was a lot harder to recapture those expenses through the sale of the radio. For one thing, I think they were building the radio as a proof of concept right. and didn't realize how popular it was going to be mm-hmm. and that they could have charged more money and sold just as many units. Uh, so they said that uh, – actually, Haggerty said the facts are that at $60 or $65, it wouldn't have made an iota of difference, meaning that – People would have bought it just as uh, just as many, and so that was uh, one of Ti's uh, mistakes in a way. It was incredibly successful, but they they failed to capitalize on its success at the rate that they could have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this is uh, it's funny. We're twenty three minutes in. We're still in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, we're gonna have to speed up. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not gonna happen with nineteen fifty eight. Because um, then we start talking about 
uh, an inventor who was on the payroll at Texas Instruments. But, uh, you know, there was an annual two-week company-wide vacation that everyone had. But, well, most people had. But new employees didn't. Uh, not if they hadn't accrued vacation time. So somebody was still puttering around, puttering around the office during this company-wide vacation. Uh, a guy named Jack Kilby. Jack St. Clair Kilby, six foot six inches tall, eats redwoods for breakfast. Bats left, throws right. No, yeah. I. <laughs> Kilby uh, was a mountain of a man. Wait, what? Anyway, six foot six inches tall is much taller than I am. Well, yeah, I agree, but I just wasn't expecting that. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was, he was looking for, uh, a way to miniaturize circuits. And he, figured out that a semiconductor uh, would make things more cost-effective. Yeah, a wafer semiconductor, where you would build the circuit elements directly onto the wafer. Huh. Yeah. That seems like a, a reasonably decent idea. Yeah, we call this na- this idea now the integrated circuit, and Kilby was the first person to produce such a circuit. It was, a rev- again, another revolutionary idea. So the transistor, <laughs> if, if you call the transistor the basis of modern electronics, the integrated circuit f- fills a role in pretty much every electronic device you can think of. So... Modern day computers would not really exist without the integrated circuit. Not, not as we know them now. Uh, calculators, v- video game consoles, microwaves, like tons of things out there rely on integrated circuits. Yeah, I believe the, uh, the sketches that he made in his notebook survive still in TI, uh, with, with their, uh, uh, company somewhere. I'm pretty sure because I, there's actually a picture of him on the TI website holding up the notebook. He actually delivered a, they had him, uh, wire up a circuit and bring it in, uh, you know, to demonstrate. And he did that on August 28th of 1958. They said, yeah, okay, it it looks like it'll work. Go ahead and, and, uh, put it together. You know, let's make a few of these and see what happens. Yeah. And yeah, he, he demonstrated it, uh, and he demonstrated actually working on September 12th. 12th. Mm-hmm. And um, apparently he he has said uh, after that, he said that um, he would have prettied it up a little if he had known that that was going to be held up as the <laughs> first integrated circuit. He, he kind of, uh, you know, as an engineer, he was building something that would work first. So it's not the uh, not the most elegant design, but it not at least from an aesthetic point of view, but from an actual engineering point of view, it's remarkable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And he would be honored many, 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 many times. Yes. So, um, and around this time, uh, it's interesting. You see some other stuff that was going on right around the same time that the integrated circuits being developed. Uh, TI landed some major supply contracts with another company that we've mentioned before mm-hmm. uh, at IBM. Yes. Which uh, was a big deal. And also uh, TI tried to show the, the uh, well, the, the potential for a transistor-based portable television. Mm-hmm. They actually went out, bought a portable TV that, that existed using vacuum tubes, stripped it out, rebuilt it using transistors, and demonstrated it. Although uh, the television manufacturers didn't really jump on board with that because they didn't think that the world was ready for such a thing. Yep. And now our, our uh, a brief episode of our show within a show, Stuff What Goes Beep. Yeah. Uh, October 4th, 1957, of course, Sputnik was launched into space. But in, in 1958... 
the United States launched Explorer 1, which had TI transistors on board to help it go beep. Yep. And uh, discover the magnetic radiation belt around the Earth. That's all it did. Yeah. No, no big whoop. Right. <laughs> but yeah. it was only doing science in space. Ah, <laughs> uh, good stuff. Yeah. So I think, uh, well, we're, we're coming up on what, 28 minutes now? Yeah, we're coming up on 28 minutes and we've got a ton of stuff to talk about. So we do I our... think, uh, I think we do a part one and a part two. How about you? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. All right. Cool. So we're going to, we're going to stop here in, uh, it's 1958, isn't it? Uh, I think so. All right. So we're going to stop in 1958 and we will pick up where we left off in our next episode, Texas Instruments Part 2. So guys, uh, if you want to hear more about other companies, you know, we've talked about IBM and we've talked about Texas Instruments and we're going to continue to do that. But if you want to hear about other companies, let us know. You can send us an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle at both of those is techstuff, H-S-W. And Chris, I will talk to you again about Texas Instruments really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.